Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with author of the book, Shape of a Woman, Jen Elizabeth. Thanks for joining me on the show, Jen. Thanks for having me. For sure. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. And I think we've got a lot to talk about, but I want to start off and jump right in by asking you a little bit about what things were like before you got sober and how you actually ended up finding recovery. So could you tell us a little bit about what things look like. <laughs> oh, wow. Let's see. So gosh, it's like really hard for me to tell any part of my addiction story without telling my childhood story. Yeah. They go hand in hand. Trauma and addiction go hand in hand. And for it sure. certainly, certainly was that way for me. Um, I think, you know, I, I have nine years now in That's recovery. Awesome. And so in these years, you know, of doing a lot of trauma work and, you know, healing addiction, all that stuff, I really come to understand that, you know, ultimately, my entire addiction was really just manifestations of trauma and ways to cope with pain. Mm. Um, and it was all about um, emotions that I was not able to process. Sure. And behaviors and those emotions and behaviors began, you know, before like my very first memories when I was probably about three. Okay. You know, um, trying to be anybody other than myself um, so that people would love me, mm. seeking attention, starving for love, um, trying to avoid my reality and, um, hide from pain and those are all things that a describe addiction and b we can do without substances hmm. you know um true. and i and i did all that even before i ever met alcohol or heroin or anything you know i um you know i come from a home that you know unfortunately my parents and you know have their own addiction issues and mental health issues and there's a lot of abuse and um, neglect and, um, you know, everything was very unsafe and unstable. And so I would just hide a lot and read the room and I would, you know, do anything I possibly could, um, in hopes that they would love me. And it just, you know, it never worked. Um, they just weren't able or capable or willing or, you know, a multitude of reasons. Um, and, you know, my parents were searching for answers um, outside of themselves, which I get. I did that when I grew up. Um, and so 
they ended up joining a religious cult. Um, and I think it promised them, you know, like a way to relieve themselves from all of their own tortures and their own traumas. And we moved to Mobile, Alabama. Um, and it started off, you know, strange. <laughs> I mean, if this happened today, and I and I, I know it does happen today, but if like these group of people came around my neighborhood today, I'd be like, you know, you guys are weird. There's something red flags everywhere. But yeah, you know, at that time, it just, you know, I don't know if it was that time. It was, you know, in the 70s, 80s, you know, it's making myself sound really old. But, um, you know, there was a lot of religious movements happening back then, a lot of fanatical stuff happening. Yeah, that was like sure. Jim Jones I and know. all that, yeah. you know, crazy stuff. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of Kool-Aid drinking. A lot of Kool-Aid drinking, and we were very close to drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, that is how wow. gnarly it turned. But yeah, it's sad. You're you just know, describing like a lot of fear. It sounds like. I mean, I. It's I a mean, lot. Yeah, there was a lot of fear, a lot of shame. You know, shame yeah. is is insidious. I mean, to me, shame is more. This. I mean, it causes more destruction. I believe in people than even drugs do. I think shame destroys people in recovery. Um, shame has been the biggest beast that I've had to fight and grapple with and overcome. And it is still a beast that shows up today, no matter how much work I do. Yeah. Um, and those types of um, organizations, um, they thrive on shame. Yeah. They, they, you know, manipulate and have power struggles and control people with shame and fear. Um, and so, you know, they knew everything about my family. My mom's mental illness was seen as a demon possession, so she did not get treatment. So all this abuse went on, you know, without anybody helping us or, you know, we were just seen as a family that gave way to the devil's temptation, basically. And I, when I was around five, one of the elders who we were taught was closer to God than any of us would ever be called me in his office. And, you know, he knew that I was a child from a broken home. You know, he knew that I was a perfect target to abuse because nobody was paying attention at my house they couldn't okay. they were just completely consumed with their own stuff yeah and even if i had said something about any abuse that went on what were they going to do about it mm. they were at the low bottom of the totem pole which is very important because children that are abused this is these are the children that are most you know targeted are children who come from broken homes and who comes from homes where parents are not present or you know, battling their own addictions or gone or whatever they are, or, or poverty, you know, we, we were very poor, just so many factors, you know, over the years that I've really seen in such a big light. And he called me in and he sat me on his lap and we started coloring, coloring books and memorizing Bible verses. And, you know, he told me that I was pretty and good and that God loved me and that I was special. And, I was starving for love. Yeah. I mean, I, I was desperate for someone to spend time with me and I loved my time with him. 
And it is such a grooming, manipulative situation. Um, and it was so planned out, you know, but I didn't see it, of course, at five. Um, but over time, you know, those times together grew into something, you know, without getting triggery, just so confusing and disturbing that I would disassociate and leave myself yeah. and drift off and leave my body to him. Mm. And I kept those secrets. I never told anybody. He never asked me not to tell anybody. I just knew somehow, you know, and, and over, you know, over the years that those secrets turned into me feeling that I was a participant versus a victim. That's very common amongst yeah. people that are survivors of childhood sexual abuse sure. or any, actually any type of sexual assault or abuse mm -hmm. is when you keep the secrets, it somehow transforms into your own secret. Those are never my secrets. I can tell you that today. <laughs> Those were never my secrets. Those are their secrets. Right. But I felt they were mine. Yeah. Um, and the shame just grew. I just, I can't really put into words how much I hated myself. Mm. It is impossible. And I wrote a book. And so believe me, I have tried to find the words and I love words. Words have saved me. I cannot find the words. It wow. is indescribable, you know, how much I hated myself and how that hatred grew. Um, it was, you know, terrible. When I was about 10, um, we fled that cult. Okay. Um, and we moved here to where I live today. So I've lived here since I was 10, almost 10. And I thought that, you know, I could leave it all behind me and just start over. It's over now, mm -hmm. you know, and clearly <laughs> that is not what happened. Yeah. You know? Wherever you go, there you are. There you are. Exactly. Yep. And that happens in all situations. And mm -hmm. so, you know, um, I, I became... I started fantasizing about killing myself and um this was at 10 around 10 11 yeah yeah i started um you know i would lay in bed at night and really just you know i just didn't want to be me i just i couldn't bear to be me i just thought i was disgusting and dirty and and um evil um and I thought that, you know, my parents couldn't love me. My mom was always, you know, attempting suicide. And wow. no matter what I did, I would beg her. She just, you know, would look straight through me. And and the thing with abuse, whether that be from, you know, someone in a church or your family, is that it does not change the way a child sees the abuser. It changes the way a child sees themselves. Wow. Yeah. It distorted who I saw in the mirror, not the way I loved them. Hmm. Um, and when I was 12, I found alcohol. I found vodka. Okay. And I, I truly believe that alcohol saved my life at one point. Um, and I know that may sound strange to say, um, because obviously down the road, it ended up almost taking my life many times. It flipped on me, of course. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I was so tortured. Um, and, you know, like I said, beginning to fantasize and, and think about killing myself. I, I truly believe that I was on that road very, very, very close. Yeah. Um, Do you think that alcohol just kind of provided that, 
you, you were talking about, you know, when the abuse is going on, and I've heard this described before that like, there's a disconnect, right? You almost kind of out of body experience. Do you think mm -hmm. that that's what kind of what alcohol was providing? It helped me cope. I yeah. just, it, it silenced the beast okay. of shame. It sure. just, you know, I remember, you know, to, I remember so clearly, it's so long ago, but I, I remember, you know, that first, it was vodka, and I remember pouring, and I was so, you know, naive, you know, of course, I'm yeah. 12, but it's amazing how many people are naive to how dangerous alcohol is, because although my story goes into to more, quote, unquote, you know, scary drugs, sure. alcohol is just as dangerous. And well, deadly. yeah, I uh, that's a good point. I think a lot of people forget, like, that's still the number they one do. killer, more so it than is, anything. It will destroy you. And, mm. and it's just, you know, when someone presents heroin, it's like, oh, God. Right. Someone right. presents a beer, it's like, oh, you know, it's like funny, cute. Yeah. Oh, you know, your son with, I see, I see parents still with their kids with a beer, like, haha, you know, like it's funny and cute. Right, it's still right. not, you know. Yeah. Um, especially if you have trauma hmm. and, and, and everybody has some level of trauma, you know, trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you. So we've all experienced trauma. Um, but especially when you have, you know, like big trauma like that, and, and a lot of people do, um, you don't realize, man, the, the, it's like a recipe for disaster. Um, and I took those few sips just innocently not realizing anything and i was an alcoholic from that moment because i remember after my glass was even halfway finished i was plotting and planning and scheming how i was going to get more yeah. for the rest of my life i never wanted to feel what it feels like to be in my own skin again mm. yeah yeah I can you know and my that. friend i was with a, another little friend she drank and she got it. real giggly and thought it was funny and then mm -hmm. she felt sick and she didn't want it and we passed out and she didn't want to do it again mm -hmm. you know she just thought that was you know weird and she was like vomiting and i just thought this is the best shit i've ever found in my right, life right right are you yeah. kidding me this is the answer this is this the is answer it. exactly yeah <laughs> you know yeah um it's just very interesting how there was two different distinctly different reactions i was quiet i felt silence i felt peace i felt good i felt yeah. whole um, you know, like I said, just all those voices of everything I hated about myself were just quiet. Um, and I set out, you know, not realizing I'm setting out to be an alcoholic, you know, forever, but I set out to drink as much as possible. And I did that, you know, and I've had people ask me like, well, what does a 12 year old alcoholic look like? Well, let me be very clear that I don't believe alcoholism has anything to do with how often you drink. It has to do with the obsession and the motives. And so although at 12, I may not have been able to find alcohol every single day, I obsessed on getting it. And I could not shake it from my mind of how I felt hmm. with it. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I just I, I followed that path. I just, you know, I drank as much as possible. And then, you know, going into high school, I didn't want to just drink on the weekends. I could not understand the concept of like, why would you just want to like yourself on the weekend? <laughs> like, I want to like myself every day, yeah. all day, all the time. So of course, yeah. I went and, you know, sought out the kids that were doing harder drugs. Mm -hmm. And 
skipping school and dropping out of school and yeah. did, you know all that stuff and there i go you know and i those were you know people that i i looked for because i knew that they had the answer because to me drugs and alcohol were the solution mm-hmm. you know they were the solution and and honestly at that time i had no other skills i i had no other coping skills i had never um even talked about any of this stuff so they were the solution truly to me wanting to die um and then you know um i mean just tons of drug history i sure, mean, could go sure. on and on well yeah so they, yeah I, I guess i was just gonna ask so i i mean just to to fast forward a little bit here yeah, not not yeah. over anything too important hopefully but no. so Things things progress clearly, right. and and I, I think I've got to say you you said two really great things. Um, one I had never heard of heard of it put like this before. I think this is so important just to rewind and touch on this that you know when you mentioned trauma is something that happens like how we feel on the inside, not necessarily the event itself. That I think that's really important because you know you could take two different people the same type of event and Mm -hmm. one person is just totally destroyed over it. And the other person, you know, maybe not so much. It's kind of a personal thing. Right. I I really like that. I I also appreciate how you said that, you know, this is really about alcoholism or addiction. It's not necessarily about the amount that you use or even the frequency necessarily. It's the obsession. And I get that 100%. I mean, I feel like, you know, even though drinking like was my first, you know, thing that I ever did, like weed was really like my first love, you know? And, <laughs> and I, I remember from the very beginning, uh, I mean, I would smoke as much as possible, but it was like, I was scraping the resin out of the pipes and I was, <laughs> you know, like from the very beginning, you know, from yeah. the, like super, the obsession was there. So I think that's, that's really important. But getting back to your story here, because I, I did just want to touch on those two great points. At, at what point did things start to shift? It sounds like, if I'm going to relate this to my story at all, it sounds like at this point, things are still a little fun, right? So when do things start to shift and, and uh, the consequences start to become more serious? And maybe you start thinking like, okay, this, isn't, this is maybe an issue. Um, I think it, you know, the quote unquote, I guess you could call it fun was up in, into my early twenties. Okay. Um, yeah. and then, you know, I was prescribed Vicodin for, I had to have a tooth pulled and I was already drinking like a fish. I mean, just, you know, but it was somewhat cute because I was like 19, 20, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. We're partying, right. we're young, you know, right. whatever. Um, and I was prescribed Vicodin and and it was again, just like that first drink. It was just, bam. I mean, instant, Hmm. this is another answer. This is the answer for me, you know? And so I did the whole, you know, had every wisdom tooth pulled one at a time for a prescription. Back then they were freer with the prescriptions. They'd give, right. you know, 30 for each tooth. I'd get them for cavities. You know, I just, I did all that stuff. Um, you know, I went to ERs for headaches and all that. And, and eventually, you know, I cannot keep a job. I, 
uh, lost my car, I lost my apartment, I ended up homeless. Um, and what's interesting is that I have a lot of negative consequences, what some would say are super negative, you know, my using turned in from pills, you know, until I was I ended up being, you know, using heroin and meth. And I was an IV heroin and meth user for about 13 years, um, living on the streets, um, eating from garbage cans. Um, you know, I went through drug psychosis, you know, walking around talking to myself, um, you know, living in cars, just, you know, um, in and out of jail, um, more times than I could even count. And mm -hmm. a lot of consequences that people would be like, are just like, wow, you know, like how, and, and, but nothing was a greater consequence than facing my pain. Nothing, mm. nothing was as terrible as, um, you know, ha having to look at or even acknowledge all of that stuff from my childhood. I just sure. could not, I thought it was just completely incapable of even glancing that way. Mm. And I was willing to die to avoid that pain. Wow. And I mean, I had abscesses, my teeth were falling out of my mouth, um, track marks, just so sick. Um, and then I, you know, like I said, I was in and out of jail a bunch of times. And finally, you know, the courts had just had, had enough of me and I was sentenced to state prison. Um, which is another pretty hor horrible consequence, I have sure. to say. Yeah, Prison is a, you know, that's a terrible place to be. But um, I still, I, you know, ultimately, um, I just really never thought that real life was possible for someone like me. Hmm. I somehow separated myself and my worth from everybody else. And I've okay. been doing that since I was a little girl. This okay. is not new yeah. behavior, you yeah. know? It just exacerbated when I started using and being homeless and, you know, going to jail and how everyone would look at me and, you know, um, you know, yeah, it got worse, but I've always felt that way. Yeah. And so, you know, my, everything changed for me in prison. Um, and is that when you, know, you were introduced to recovery? I was introduced briefly here and there um, in and out of jail because they would they would sentence me to like, you know, 30 days or outpatients or, okay, um, okay. you know, to get out of jail. And sure. Like a drug court type of thing. Drug courts. Yeah. yeah. Um, I even got sentenced to a six month in custody. Um, drug, uh, it was actually a behavioral modification program, but they did have AA and NA come in occasionally. Okay. okay. Um, but so I had some seeds. So that's why, like, I really believe so much in these in little seeds that get planted, seeds of kindness, compassion, acceptance, love, recovery, whatever it happens to be. Because even though maybe those seeds don't take someone down the road that you want them to go at that time, they stay with them. They matter. Mm. Those seeds matter to me. I, they always stayed with me. And I may not have thought I was capable of what other people were doing, but to see people who were kind of like me doing things different mattered, you know, that it was, it was possible because some people I know are doing it and whether or not I felt I could do it, you know, that took a while.
Mm. as part of the journey, part of my journey, you know? Yeah. But in prison, you know, I still did the same thing I did. I started smuggling tobacco and I was, you know, trading tobacco for pills, but it wasn't as plentiful, obviously, as on the streets. There are drugs and alcohol there, of course, but it's just not as free, you know? Right, right. Um, so I, I didn't get as messed up. Um, but I had, you know, about a year into my into my prison sentence, I had like you know a divine intervention or whether you believe in god or you know intuition or the universe whatever you happen to believe sure. obviously i come from a cult and a lot of religious trauma so i never force anything on anybody yeah, but yeah i believe truly something bigger than me you know is out there and i believe that they came to me that day in prison and a sensation came over me and i just um you know, the sound left the room and I, you know, finally a little spark ignited that I just, I didn't want to live like that anymore. Hmm. That maybe, just maybe I was worth more than overdosing in a riverbed as a transient whose identification was pending. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that is my recovery date, which is May 1st, 2011. That's awesome. You know, I, I'm definitely someone that you know, coming into this deal struggled with like the spirituality and, and higher power part of all this. And, and kind of like what you're saying with the seeds being planted and others believing, I think what really worked for me initially was just believing that, that others believe. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I hear one thing that really helped me was hearing stories like yours, because you've just gone in depth about how I mean, if I just heard the beginning and middle of your story, I'm just thinking you're going to end up dead. You know, it's like, right. it's the end of the story, you yeah. know, for there to be this moment where it's just like something changes all of a sudden, you know, it's tough for me. Like, I think what I started to see is it, I, it took more work and more effort to like, say that there's not something bigger out there than to just say like, okay, maybe, and be kind of open-minded to it. Right. Right. So yeah. I, I think that's, that's pretty incredible. So you, you, you get out of prison and it sounds like, did you get involved with a 12 step program or where did things kind of go from there? So when I got out of prison, um, part of my parole was, you know, to get my court card signed. Right. Right. Um, got to get that paper signed. Got to get that paper signed. <laughs> and, you know, I, I really, I really, it bums me out when I see people make fun of people with court cards. I know. Yeah. Um, or look down on people on medication assisted recovery or whatever. I mean, I'm a super big harm reduction advocate, so I will try not to go crazy on that. But, um, and I was, believe it or not, I was against all that stuff for many years in my recovery, but mm -hmm. It, whatever it takes to get somebody to take better care of themselves than the day before, we should honor that. I don't care if it's your wife nagging at you. Hmm. I don't care if it's a court card. I don't care if it's, you know, you just want to get some possessions back or if you're trying to save your life. Whatever it is, what, whatever the reason that you get into recovery, I promise you that the longer you stay, those are not the reasons that you're going to stay there. Those are not the reasons that will be in the end or as you continue. You know, I got there just to not go to prison. Right. It was not a bit, there was not a big part of me that knew 
I really, even though something so big happened to me on May 1st, that told me I'm just not going to use, because clearly I thought drugs and alcohol were the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that those were the problem. So if I can just figure out how, how do I, how do people function without using? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you shower? How do you make a bed? Like, I had no clue how to human at all. If, but if I could just figure that out, then I would be fixed and all this pain would be gone because it's obviously the drugs and the alcohol because they're illegal. They've gotten me into jail, prison. You know, I was homeless. They've made my teeth fall out. You know, they have to be the problem. I was super wrong. (laughs) They were not the problem at all. They were a terrible coping skill that caused a lot of negative consequences, but the problem was everything underneath those substances, yeah. everything underneath that layer of drugs and alcohol, that's yeah. where the issues lie. Wow. But, you know, I, I went with my court card and I went back to, you know, I went to the 12 steps, which I had been introduced to, you know, throughout part of my drug history. Um, and I, I love the 12 steps. Um, I, I love the fellowship. I love, um, I truly believe that they say, they helped me save my life big time. Um, and I was very 12 step or die. Um, in the first few years of my recovery, I, um, I really felt that every other option out there was just, um, BS. Um, it was a lot of fear, but you know, what happened is about two years in recovery, I again started feeling like I wanted to kill myself. Um, it was nothing. This is nothing against the 12 steps at all. But I, I kept myself in this box that told me, and many people told me that it works if you work it. So if it's not working, and it was working for what it's designed for, which is to stop drinking and using and to right. make amends and to be of service and all these things. But the 12 steps are not trauma informed. They're mm. not supposed to be. Um, and so I did not do any trauma work at all. I just was there on that, you know, doing in that box. And sure. um, I was in so much pain, man. I, the nightmares and the PTSD and, you know, eating disorder and just all these things started coming up um that i i remember i remember there was a moment i just thought if this is man if this is it i'd rather be dead like honestly you know depending on how you look at it i don't know what's worse is being on the streets using or being sober and fuck and just tortured yeah i get that honestly using is somewhat easier yeah you know it's somewhat less painful mm-hmm. um and I just, again, whether it's, you know, the universe or, I, you know, I believe I do have a higher power that is not the God that I was painted out, you know, that he was painted to be in my childhood. Mm-hmm. That is not, that none of that was of God, no matter what they said. <laughs> um, but my God, um, he, he came to me again and he, and I just said, I'm going to give it one more shot. And I remember Googling, <laughs> I love Google. I remember Googling um, what is sexual abuse. I had no idea. And I was probably 30. I had no idea. No, I was probably, I don't know, 33. That 
no, God, I was, was I older than that? No, I was probably three or three. I had no idea that what had happened to me was abuse. Wow. No clue. I thought that I was a perverted child mm-hmm. and weird and just, if anybody ever found out, they would never want to know me. Right. If, you know, and the floodgates just opened for mm-hmm. me because the, the biggest thing I think that can happen to anybody in recovery is to hear me too. And yeah. me too movement is of course about sexual assault, but the words me too echo throughout anything for sure to know that I was not, there was not anything wrong with me yeah. that it made total sense what I was feeling. And I decided to advocate for my own healing. And no matter what anybody told me, and no matter if they were telling me I was going to relapse or, you know, I was being misguided, I decided to advocate for myself. And I started doing trauma work and seeing a therapist and doing EMDR therapy and, you know, inner child work. And this has been the last several years, my entire recovery blew up. And so I always say that sobriety saved my life. But trauma work has saved my recovery. Mm. Um, I think it is important. I think it is so important that we encourage people to have as big as a toolbox as they need. And that we don't have so much fear about people wanting to go a different way or people wanting to add in other ways. Like, I think you could go the 12 steps. I think you can go to celebrate recovery on, on Sunday you could go to Dharma on the weekend. I mean, do it all yeah. if you want. Right. Go to therapy. Go to trauma-informed yoga. You know, mm-hmm. use the gym. I mean, I just think, like, there's so much available to us today, which is just – it's such a great time for recovery. It's so – it's such a beautiful time, even from the nine years, even just the nine years. What's available and, and more openly talked about today is, is just had grown so much, even in just my short time of being in recovery. Back then, really, the only thing that was really talked about was AA and NA, which is right. wonderful. Right. But that was really the only, and now today it's like, you know, I have gone so far and wide in my recovery. You know, I do so many things. Um, but I do still get asked sometimes to speak at AA and NA meetings. And I always get nervous because I, I, I don't believe anything is an outside issue. I think everything is the issue. Everything is the reason we're here. Yep. Um, and I do not let anyone bully me into not talking about it. But what happens is that every single time so far up to this day, so if it changes, I'll let you know. But so far up to this day, every single time that I've shared and shared about all the outside issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I have people come up to me, old timers even come up to me after with tears in their eyes, or even during the meeting, share something they never shared before because they'd never put two and two together. That maybe the that maybe there's no such thing as as good as it gets in recovery. No such thing. Wipe that whole entire freaking sentence out of your mind. Mm. It can always get bigger more beautiful. We can always be better. So no matter if yeah. someone has 25 years sober, that does not mean shit. For sure. Yeah. They can be 25 years and be suffering. I see people suffering in recovery and it's so unfortunate hmm. and it's so unnecessary. Yeah. And we need to be 
courageous and those of us that have found other ways that have blown up our recovery and blown up our entire world into like what it can be, we need to be courageous and talk about it because those people need us, not just the newcomers, the old timers. Yep. Yeah, for sure. You've just talked about so, so many, I mean, important and, and so many things I agree with. I mean, you know, uh, we were talking before our chat here that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still involved in a 12 step program and, and that's kind of my main deal. And I'll just tell you that like, before I started doing this, uh, this podcast, or one of the reasons that I started doing this podcast is because I wanted to hear about what other people were doing. And because there was a time when I first got sober that I was just like, you know, if it's not the 12 steps, then, you know, then it's, then you're not doing shit basically, you know, that's, (laughs) that's just kind of the way that I felt about it. Although at the same time, like early on in recovery, like I I did see a therapist, you know, there were other things I did. I I think, you know, in every group, every meeting is kind of different. Right. But unfortunately I do hear, you know, there, you hear about people saying, man, I want to, you know, a a 12 step meeting, and they didn't want me talking about certain things. I think it's Mm -hmm. important for people to understand, just looking at at the 12 step and the whole outside issues thing, the outside issues part of thing, like part of it, when that was originally written, it was talking about politics. Right. And I still think politics should probably stay (laughs) stay out of the meetings and everything. But uh, especially with all the craziness these days. But um you know, it, I think it is all related. And, and I, I've also heard people say like, oh, I went to a meeting and they told me that if I was taking certain medication, uh, you know, for mental health issues and I, then I wasn't sober and, you know, different things like that. And it's just like, man, like I, I just can't agree with that at all. And I'm with you that, um, you know, I think as long as someone's taking action and they're being honest to themselves about actually like, working their recovery do whatever works try different things it's just a funny thing because i'm with you like i think most addicts are kind of all or nothing to some degree and i think we get into that sometimes in our recovery and it's really like man we should just we should be trying different things out you know maybe you want a little of this and a little of that and and that works for you and that's cool so I think, I'm with you. I think, yeah, totally. I think what happened, and I was the same way. So no shame there. I was, I mean, I, I told people they couldn't share because they were on Suboxone. I, I told people I was willing to help them once they became willing to get sober. And not only that, let me be very honest, once they became willing to do the 12 steps. Mm. Um, and I'm not proud. Today, that does not sit right in my heart. Mm. So. I cannot live with that anymore. I did that. And, you know, that's part of my, my journey. But now, you know, over the last several years, um, everything has changed for me because now what I want to say is that I'm willing to care for you now. You don't even have to want to get sober. Hmm. I remember what it was like to not even know what I was fighting for in the first place. What am I even fighting for? What would I even want? It? Why would I even want this life that you're offering me? Mm-hmm. What is there to fight for? Because some people, lots of people, never even had a base to, to like weigh in on. When you come from pain, I mean, it's just a different pain. 
that's all really life and addiction is when you come from pain. It's just a different pain, but there's really nothing to weigh in on. And so, you know, for me, I spent a huge weight on me, you know, just taken off to take off this like agenda. I don't have this agenda anymore that I'm Mm -hmm. only going to care for you or help you if your help, if the only, if the help you want has to be to get sober right now, your help could be food, housing, clean needles, um, medication assisted, you know, treatment, um, testing strips, whatever it is, because the truth is that those people that are still using deserve dignity. And they're not worth any less than we are. I was not worth any less under that bridge with my teeth falling out, selling heroin, than I am right this minute talking to you. I just didn't know it. Yeah. But I was I, my worth as a human being was nothing different than it is right now. Mm. And so it's seeds. What happens when someone comes in and and gets, you know, tests for you know hepatitis c to some sort of a harm reduction center or whatever right or they come in and get a test strip to test to see if their drugs are going to kill them or not Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is actually self-care believe it or not sure that is actually a way that is a, a huge way for some people that shows a little bit of love for yourself and that those seeds go a long way And so I'm here to plant the seeds. I'm not here to plant a seed as long as you want to get sober or get sober, whatever. Nobody's the winner here. AA is not the winner. Dharma recovery. No one, you know, if you're here to be the winner, winner chicken dinner, like you're here for the wrong reason. Um, Because everybody's different. So everybody's path. There are people that, you know, yeah are harmed in all different pathways. You know, you, the thing is that you can actually absolutely say, I love the 12 steps. I, it saved my life. I'm a firm, you know, regular attendee, I'm a member of that fellowship. And I understand if the 12 steps may have harmed you and you found a different way. Like the word and is so big. Like yeah. we always do this we want to be the winner. And so if we love it and somebody else feels harmed from it, we have to just bash them or, or find some excuse. Why? Why do we want sure. to be the winner? The only people yeah. that are losing are the people out there. Yeah. Those are the only people losing. Yeah. And that, those are my people. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and just like, you know, in terms of, of recovery and different programs and doing other things like, you know, uh, getting help for, um, you know, other issues you might be experiencing or mental health issues or or whatever it is, you know, my, my thoughts on harm reduction have changed too. And it's, it's, it shouldn't have, I shouldn't have ever been, uh, not that I was necessarily against it. I just wasn't really sure about it. And, you know, here I am. And like, what brought me into recovery was Suboxone. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) You know, and, and so now I will say like, there are some things that I, and I appreciate, you know, I had never thought about it, what you just said about some of these, these different types of harm reduction, when when someone is participating in things like, like this, I never thought about it as, as self care on, on the part of the addict. That's a really good point. I had never, I had never thought about it that way. 
I will say that like, you know, when I hear some things these days, I'm just like, you know, and, and this is just me being honest. Like, I'm like, how much more is this helping right now? Like one of the things I'll, I'll mention is that, you know, with everything that's going on with COVID right now, um, you know, I've heard that there's some places that are uh, giving people alcohol and I'm like, okay, like I can kind of see like, how, yeah, you know, if you like go into DTs or something like that could be serious. I can kind of see that. But then I hear about other things like over in the UK, I saw that um, recently they started having like the first state funded um, heroin users actually getting heroin from the government. And, and, I, and I get that they're in like a clean environment and they're getting clean needles. And I'm just like, you know, I, I don't know. Part of me still, still kind of wonders about that stuff like that, you know, and, right. um, and part of me doesn't think that any of this stuff should be, you know, there's, there's a legal side of all this too. And I don't want to go down that road, you know, part of right. me thinks that, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, stuff going on there as well. Not, like I said, not to, to go this whole, <laughs> this whole different route. I want to ask you, you know, because you, you've mentioned that shame was, was just like the biggest thing that you've had to deal with and and that it was really your your biggest trigger and how how did you start to deal with some of that i mean what what were some of the i mean were there any like like if someone's listening right now and they're thinking like yeah like i'm you know i've been sober for you know maybe a few months now and it's the shame and the guilt of all the things i've done like it's just eating me up and i'm doing my step work and were there any specific things that you remember doing that like just really helped you kind of start to move on from some of that stuff maybe? Well, I think for one is um, amazingly a lot of times we feel like we are the only one. Yeah. You know, we feel like we are the odd man out. We're different. Mm -hmm, We're mm -hmm. broken. Um, you know, we can't achieve what other people are achieving around us or whatever. And so I think, like I said about the me too, I think for me, um, I, I just, and it took a lot of courage to even type those words in, but, you know, there's so many communities out there today, you know, groups and support groups and um, whether it's on social media or on the internet or you know, in a therapy session or whatever, but there that I swear and I promise that no matter what you search, put it in the search bar, be courageous, you know, put it in the search bar, just see what you're going to find is that you, I promise you, you're not alone. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's, it doesn't matter if you have issues with a mother wound, it doesn't matter if it's some sort of abuse, if it's, um, that you were a sex worker, you know, that you were raped, that you, you know, still have a problem stealing, even though you're in recovery. I mean, there's a multitude of things, right? Yeah. Um, that you lost your children, that you abused your children, you know, whatever it is mm -hmm. that you just feel you cannot utter, you just can't, you can't say it, or maybe you've said it, but really you've disconnected with the emotion from it, you know? Um, and, or you told your sponsor and, and, you know, sponsors are not therapists. They're just people. So they can only do so much, you know? Um, yeah. and, I mean, we can't expect them to be trauma trained. They're just people. Right. <laughs> um, and maybe it just, you're just not getting the relief that you had hoped. So I, I just, number one, 
I just want to tell everybody that you're not alone, no matter what it is. Put it in the search bar, put it in the Google search, look um, for therapists, whatever it is that you're able to do. There's a lot of free free resources available as well. Put it in the search bar and you will find entire communities healing from just that. And just sit in there and read through stuff. You don't even have to speak if you're not ready to speak, but you're going to find your story. Like I always say that, you know, my story is not for everybody. Like my story may not relate to yours. Like maybe it just seems like way out there to some people. Maybe it seems real mild to other people. Um, You know, it's, but it is exactly what someone needs to hear. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're here, right? For those someones. Like I'm not here to like maybe for everybody to resonate with what I have to say. I'm here for that one person, that one, one person that's suffering like I did that thought that they could never heal from that, or they could never speak about that, or they, you know, should be so ashamed till the day they die. No, I'm here to say no, you know, and, and there's huge communities out there. So that's one thing is that I surrounded myself with people who got it, go where the love is, no matter what it is, go where the love is, because that is what you need. Love heals. Love may not change someone's exact path right away, but it still heals. That's the difference of having an agenda. So go where the love is, seek out communities. I also, um, obviously I started then taking action with doing inner child work, which is huge. I do inner child meditation every day where, and there's nothing fancy about me. I don't know if you figured that out yet, but literally my pink hair is about as fancy as it gets. Like I'm straight ghetto. I'm still me. Everything is winging it. I'm winging it on hopes and prayers. Um, But I take a picture of myself from when I was about five and I close my eyes and I envision myself going in the corner and picking that little girl up and I twirl her in the sunshine and I hold her the way she should have always been held. And I tell her she is love and light and none of that was her fault. And that together we can walk through anything. And I do this every day. Mm. and I didn't come up with this on my, I mean, these are things that people do. People are doing this. People are healing, you know, and I'm reparenting myself. So as time is going on that I actually, this is ways that I love myself. These are little ways I started to love myself was just taking some action into my own care Mm. into taking a little better care of myself than the day before. That to me is the ultimate definition of recovery is just whatever somebody does to take better care of themselves than the day before. It may not be to the level that you and I are at. It may not be to the level of what we in our heart of hearts would like them to be, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it is still recovery. Yeah. It is still healing and it still matters and it's still important. Yeah. Um, and so I do that and I do, you know, I looked up trauma informed, anything trauma informed. And like we said earlier, anything, there's so much trauma. anything can be trauma and the addiction experience itself is a traumatic experience i I have a friend that's um, a therapist and she gave the most simple advice the simple definition or what the antonym of the opposite of trauma is choice Hmm. anything that happens to us around us within us um whatever that was out of our control that we had no choice over is considered a traumatic event, a traumatic experience. Now, it doesn't matter. I don't know how it's going to affect you because trauma is what happens inside of you because of that experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
But if you think about the addiction experience, I think most of us, no matter what path of recovery you're on, can say that when we become addicted to something, we lose our power of choice. Yeah. Just the simple fact that we cannot function, whether that function be socially or whether we physically, literally are ill without a substance, that is trauma. And that can affect somebody. So even if you didn't have maybe what you would consider traumatic childhood, maybe maybe you're one of the rare ones who had just a happy addiction, like you were in your parents' house, they gave you the drugs, you never mm -hmm. had to be, you know, let's just say, because that, I mean, it's rare, but it happens. True. But yeah. just the fact that you were reliant on something, and unless you had it, you could not move or go on through your day, that is a traumatic experience. So everybody has some trauma. So it's important to look for trauma care. I think it's a huge gap. I think there's a huge gap of silence that it is becoming more, we are becoming more aware of it. Um, but trauma, the link between trauma and addiction is ginormous. Yeah. It's, I, it's like, I think a bigger link between trauma and addiction than there is between like obesity and diabetes or something i mean it's like hmm. huge it's huge yeah I and can so see if we that. just if we just get rid of the drugs and alcohol if we just work on making amends to people right, right. these are all wonderful things don't yeah. get me wrong please hugely important mm -hmm. um if we just do you know those behavior type things but we don't deal with the, what trauma really affects which trauma is held in the body and on all the trauma work that needs to be done, like literally either we're going to relapse or we're going to be miserable in recovery. Yeah. Or not as full that our potential as is. So like I said, sure. there's no yeah. such thing as as good as it gets. So maybe your life is pretty, it's a, it's good, but maybe you have interpersonal relationships problems. Maybe, you know, a lot of people are suffering with trauma that don't even realize that's what it is. And that's why it's important that we talk about it. Those of us who have come to this point, to talk about it because like I said, even in a room full of old timers, well, I'm sure they're just gonna ream me. And some do, <laughs> some do, but more than not, and more important than that, are the ones that the light bulb goes on. Mm -hmm. That, you know, or just the fact that they had someone else, because when you see someone else break the silence, it encourages other people to break it as well, who've been dying to. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, and you've just given some really great specific uh, ideas there for someone that might be dealing with trauma and or shame. And, and I think I'm going to sum it up with something that you touched on earlier, and it's being being your own advocate. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, because the, the bottom line is, is it you know, and you kind of laughed about it earlier, you know, just Google searching something, but it really does start, like you said, like it's, that's what it started with for you. It's mm -hmm. just, I, I think that, um, the, the action has to be there as simple as it is. Right. Yeah, or, or as little, sure. as little as we may think that like, oh, well, what is searching Google going to do? You know, um, I know that, <laughs> right. you know, to that end, like, for years before I got sober, I was Googling like AA meetings and, and, you know, stuff about how to get sober, you know? So right? it's, it's a, like you said, it's a form of self-care, you know, that, yeah, that looking, is. that seeking. So that's so important. Now I don't want to wrap up here before talking about your book, 
shape of a woman. Yeah. Probably, we should probably mention that. So, so who is the book for? What, what is it all about? Tell me a little bit about it. So the book is for everybody, but um, obviously I do touch on, you know, I do address women a lot in it. Um, well, because I am a woman, shocking. But because also I, you know, I dealt with a lot of issues about being a woman mm -hmm. coming from abuse and sexual assault and all yeah. these things um, and the cults and all that, you know, I've just, I was basically, it's called Shape of a Woman because no matter how we have been shaped, we are not bound to that. I'm not mm -hmm. bound to how I have been shaped. Yes, I was shaped a certain way, but today, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I can be whoever I want, whatever I want. And my truth is always changing. And I think that as long as we're always growing through life, whether that be in the recovery sphere or the healing sphere, whatever it is, our truths will always change because yeah. it's our perception and our and the way we feel inside. And so I, I really, you know, when I, in my addiction, I lost the ability to read. I, wow. Wow. I had to do, I did hooked on, this is hilarious. The one of the girls hooked in the on prison phonics. Had, hooked on phonics. She had a hooked on, yeah. <laughs> I had forgotten about hooked on phonics. Right. <laughs> but wow. I had used it's not that I never had learned to read, but I had used and lived on the streets so long that I could no longer put the letters together to make a word or the words together to form a sentence. It just wow. baffled me. Today I'm an author. Like, whoa, it's that huge. Pretty crazy. It's like incredible, right? Mm -hmm. It just blows my mind. But um you know, it's just a book about it. Gives, oh, it kind of an overview of my story, and and it it's not an um, addiction book. It's not okay. an addiction memoir. In fact, yeah. nothing I really do focuses an an awful lot amount on on substances or sobriety. Everything that lives underneath that surface is where I swim. Okay. Yeah. So although those things came into play and although I, I'm super, you know, I do talk about sobriety, of course, but that is, you know, I'm not like a sober account. It's not like a sober book. You know, I'm a healing person. Everything about recovery for me is about healing. It's like 5% about the, about the drugs and alcohol. And I think what we find the longer we get in recovery, that's what happens. Of course, in the beginning, it's everything. We can't figure out a function you know, right. without using or drinking or how do we go in social? How do we date? How do we do this? Whatever. Mm -hmm, but over mm -hmm. time, you realize, God, like actually the alcohol or the drugs, that was like nothing. That's like such a small part. It's like sure. everything else, the yeah, feelings, the, the emotions, stuff. the life stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not, you know, an addiction book. However, you know, I do, of course, touch on that and talk about my experience. And it's just, it's a, it's just about, you know, it's like my name, you know, and all my social media about resurrection. It's just, you know, I'm not trying to be somebody new. I want to learn from every, every stage of who I've already been. I don't want to discard her at all. Yeah. Who she is has built me to be who I am today. She's freaking important. Hmm. All stages of her. And I'm talking about her in third person, but I don't see her as a third person. But right, you, know, right. you know, all stages of who I've been are important. And I do not want to discard any of it. None of it, everything is valuable and none of it goes to waste. And it's just, you know, um, I'm going to write more. And because, you know, even that was just a year ago, I post, I published that book. Okay. I already feel so different. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> it's very strange how people can write. I've thought about this. Like, how do people write one book and then 
feel good about that one book forever. Like right, unless you stay stuck in that moment. Sure. You know, but I feel so different already. So yeah, That's I have awesome. lots of plans. I'm the, I, I have, I'm the idea generator, lots of generation, <laughs> lots of generating going on up here. <laughs> yeah. I, hey, I, I get that. I get that. So I, I think you've already given a few really great, uh, tips and, and suggestions here, um, especially for anyone that's, that's dealing with trauma or shame. But before we wrap up, is there one piece of advice that you'd like to share or leave with the Sober Nation? Oh, jeez. Putting you on the spot. Yeah. Wow. Um, gosh, one piece of advice. I would just say probably what I've already said is to please, please courageously advocate for yourself. Be an advocate for your own healing and your own life. And, you know, there's no such thing as as good as it gets. So always strive to feel better. And it is possible. And, you know, nobody's more capable than anybody else. How's that? <laughs> I love it. That's awesome okay. advice. That's awesome <laughs> advice. So, you can learn more about Jen. You can find her book, The Shape of a Woman, at Resurrection with a K, resurrectionofme.com. Thanks again for coming on the show, Jen. Thanks for having me. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.